Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. If you would take your copy of God's Word and open to Genesis, to Genesis chapter number 3. And this morning, the text that we will start with, although we're going to look at a number of texts, will be from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. As the assignment given to me for this hour is the subject of complementarianism in an egalitarian age. And so we're going to begin with a reading from Genesis chapter 3, and then we will dive into this very important subject before us. The Word of God reads in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Join me in prayer at this time. Father, we ask that at this very moment in this conference that you would use your word to strengthen and build up your people, that you would cause us to see and to understand and to discern the times that are before us, and that we would have wisdom necessary to navigate the complexities of conversation, definitions, words, theology, ideas, and agendas. And Father, of course, we ask that all of this would not just be somehow uh, in a vacuum or somehow disconnected from the local church. All of this has great implication, not just for debates on social media, not for just debating the issues at a Southern Baptist convention, not for just debating issues in a conference setting. But these issues have great impact upon the local, tangible, visible New Testament church. And so we, in this conference, are committed to your church, to the local church. And so would you strengthen your people, encourage us in truth, so that you would be praised among your people, so that you would receive the glory and the honor and the worship. We ask all of this in Christ's name, amen. Well, it's no secret that there is this thing that's known as the statement on social justice and the gospel, and since this statement was released, uh, there have been an awful lot of conversations that have 
developed. There have been conversations in person. There have been conversations over coffee. There have been conversations on social media. And as we consider those conversations, what we are aware of is that we look and see how people have treated the statement. And if you have paid close attention to the statement and its release, you will note that there has yet to be a robust, real, serious-minded, theological rebuttal of the statement. There have been attempts to smear the statement or to suggest that it's uh, somehow superficial or off-base or whatever else, but there has not been one serious-minded theological rebuttal of the statement. Certainly there have been people that have thrown mud or rocks or backhanded us, so to speak, in, in social media world, and they've suggested that it's simply something that will fade off into the sunset, that we should not pay attention to it at all. In fact, in recent days, Russell Moore has suggested that the goal of the statement on social justice in the gospel was primarily about race. As he was being interviewed by Lauren Green of Fox News in an interview, he stated the following. When all of a sudden, as the interview shifted from his book to the statement on social justice in the gospel, it was as if he wasn't aware that the question was going to be asked. But when it was asked, this is what he said. He said, what we're really talking about is race. And so I think we have a long-lasting issue within evangelicalism of people saying, let's not talk about the issues of racial reconciliation, unity, and justice. That would be a distraction from the gospel. That's exactly what was happening in the 19th century as it related to human slavery. That's exactly what was happening in the 1920s and 1950s as it related to Jim Crow, and it persists among us. Well, I can stand before you today without blushing to say to you, first and foremost, that the desire of the statement on social justice in the gospel was not to avoid the subject of race. In fact, it was to speak about the issue of race, about the issue of racism, but it was to do more than that. In fact, out of the 14 articles, there are only two that deal with the subject of race and racism, and there are many other articles that deal with other issues related to the issue of social justice, and we must pay close attention to those very issues as well. It's a complex world full of definitions and ideas, and so always remember that ideas and words and theology matters. Now, we're living in a very confused culture as it relates to the roles and responsibilities of women and men. And when we think about what it means to be complementarian, what it means that, that God has designed roles and responsibilities and boundaries for both men and women in culture and in the church is somehow offensive to certain people. In fact, as we consider our own culture itself, uh, it's no... It's no uh, uh, it's not a surprising thing at all to consider the fact that our culture is very confused on these issues. When you consider the fact that 2015 Glamour magazine suggested and put before the whole world that their choice of woman of the year was Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner, who is Bruce Jenner, who went through a surgery 
to try to transform himself into Caitlyn Jenner. And so we live in a very confused world when a magazine would say that this man who's attempted to transform himself into a woman is the woman of the year for 2015. And sadly, many people have followed in the footsteps of a Bruce Jenner. For instance, we have a transgender MMA fighter, Fallon Fox, who faced great criticism after he fought Tamika Brents and defeated her by TKO at 2 minutes and 17 seconds in the first round, crushing the eye socket and leaving her with a concussion. She said in an interview after the fight, quote, I've never felt so overpowered ever in my life. You have a man who called himself a woman so that he could punch women and so that he could be praised for it. We're living in very confused days. And sadly now, we see that we're entering into a social justice era where we have the Me Too movement that adds to the confusion. And so we have uh, questions like, where in the world is Matt Lauer? Many of you might remember years ago that the Today Show would do a, a segment once a year where every single day throughout the week, Matt Lauer would appear in a different country in a different context, and all of the, the viewers were supposed to guess where he was based on where he was eating, the culture of the people surrounding him. But now we're asking the question, where is Matt Lauer for different reasons? Because one day we woke up and Matt Lauer literally poofed and disappeared. He's gone. And so what I'm suggesting to you today is not that Matt Lauer was a victim. I'm not suggesting that he was innocent. I'm suggesting that we're living in what's known as a Me Too culture. The hashtag that's been uh, circulating through social media to try to bring to the surface certain injustice and abuse of women. And so many have been guilty. Many were not guilty. Some are still uh, leaving us with great uncertainties whether or not they are innocent or guilty of the charges. But nevertheless, the charges are there. We have Brett Kavanaugh, we have Sylvester Stallone, we have Morgan Freeman, we have Tom Brokaw, and then within the evangelical culture, we have names such as Paige Patterson, Paul Pressler, and even Beth Moore. Beth Moore uh, entering the Me Too movement with an article that was titled, A Letter to My Brothers, where she discussed the injustice and the abuse that she has received in evangelicalism. And with that particular article that literally nearly shut down the internet, you have other articles that were coming in the wake of her article by individuals like the Bidianyabwile, who wrote an article that was titled, An Apology to Beth Moore and My Sisters. And so when she entered the Me Too movement, now you have the apology movement where people are starting to write open letters of apology apologizing for their brothers, apologizing for looking the wrong way in an elevator, or, uh, apologizing for various uh, sorts of marginalization or injustice. And so it was that through all of this confusion, we felt it necessary to address the subject not just about race, because social justice, you see, this complex monster, if you will, before us is not only dealing with 
issues related to race, but also issues related to complementarianism. So what exactly is complementarianism? Complementarianism is this idea that is rooted in Scripture that God created man and woman as equal in value and personhood as image bearers. But they have specific characteristics and distinct roles and responsibilities and boundaries that are visible in both creation and redemption and are manifest not only in society but also in the local church for the glory of God. I want to tell you a story just to illustrate this just a bit as we begin. There was a man named Tom who was a computer geek in Atlanta, Georgia. He sat at a cubicle. He, he worked there on websites and other app development there for the city of Atlanta. In walked a woman named Sandra. She happened to be a very skilled lead detective for the city of Atlanta. She was really good with a gun. She was really good in martial arts. In, in, in fact, she uh, not only worked on the street for many years before be, becoming a detective, but she uh, was very skilled in martial arts, having a black belt. And so the two of these individuals, although you might consider it to be an unlikely couple, they met and they eventually married. So you have Tom the computer geek, and you have Sandra the detective in Atlanta, Georgia, that, that become husband and wife. Now, during their engagement period, they went out for an evening on the town. They went out for supper and then walked a few blocks down to where they would go to a show at the Fox Theater. Just before rounding the corner to the Fox, as they were walking on the sidewalk, three individuals approached them. They came to them and they said, uh, we need your wallet and we need your jewelry and we need it now. And so Tom is standing there, of course, surprised by the whole the, the whole incident itself, and he's immediately thinking about how good his, his soon-to-be wife is with her feet and with her hands and with her gun, and he's thinking about how uncoordinated he is and how good he is at the keyboard, and all of these things are flashing through his mind at rapid speed as these individuals are standing there with a gun saying, we want your wallet, we want your jewelry. So as he's thinking about this, in fact, they they intensified the situation by saying this, if you don't give us this, we will take her. At this very moment, this computer geek steps in front of his wife, stares at the individuals, reaches for his wallet. As he's taking his wallet out of his back pocket, he instead punches the man in the center of the group right in the nose. Harder than he's hit anyone or anything in his entire life. That's the last thing that Tom remembered because the next thing that happened was they attacked him. He hit the ground. He's on the sidewalk. He's bleeding from his face. He suffered a massive concussion. Now, what he doesn't know is that his soon-to-be wife, at that very juncture, when they jumped on him, she pulled a gun from her purse, insisted that they get on the ground, put them under arrest, called for the city of Atlanta Police Department to come. They arrested them, took them off, and he wakes up in the ambulance, and she's with him. Instead of going to the Fox, they went to Grady Memorial Hospital. As they are there in the ER, and she's looking at the bandage on his broken nose, and his beat up head, and the concussion, and all of this, she thinks to herself, 
not what a weak man. I don't want to marry a guy like this. I'm much more capable than he is. No, instead, she looks at him and she says, this is exactly the type of man that I want to spend the rest of my life with. Now, that's just a short story to illustrate to you that all of us men in this room can testify that in many ways we marry up. We marry above our heads. We, we marry women that are in many ways stronger or even at times more intelligent than we are. All right? But what that doesn't mean is that our wives are to lead us. It doesn't mean that our wives are to reverse the role. It doesn't mean that our wives are to take the step forward in front of us. It doesn't mean that we are to stand behind our wives. What it means is that they are capable, that they are confident, that they are intelligent, that they are able, and all of this is for the glory of God. But it means that God has given to us roles and responsibilities and boundaries that are not rooted in culture, but rather are rooted in creation and are put before us in the sufficient word and we are to follow. And so this is what complementarian looks, complementarianism looks like. And so the, the assignment before me, what I want to accomplish for the next few minutes, if I may, we're going to look at a couple of different passages, is first to consider the created order and then move to the church. First, the created order. That the role of the devil, the desire of the devil is to distort God's created order in creation. God has established distinctions for male and female in creation. And these distinctions have been blurred. They have been distorted over time. Go with me now to Genesis chapter 2. Look in Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 to 25 and notice what we see here. In this passage of scripture we see that there are distinctions, roles and responsibilities that are put before Adam. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you, notice this, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, 
this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. These are distinctions, not curses. These are distinctions rooted in creation, not resulting from the curse of the fall. And so as we consider these very distinctions, we must remember a few things. First of all, God created Adam first, which points to his headship. God provided distinct leadership roles for Adam. Adam was given charge of working the garden. By the way, this is a really good thing for all young people to learn at an early age. Work is not a bad thing. This is not something that resulted from the fall. Before the fall, he placed Adam in the garden to work. And so work is a good thing. Adam was given the boundaries by God. This is the forbidden fruit. Don't eat of it. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam was given the charge of naming the animals. Adam was alone. And the first negative pronouncement that we find in Scripture was that Adam was alone. And that this was not a good thing. So Eve was created from Adam's side. And Adam was given the charge of leading Eve. Both male and female were created in the image of God. Both were created equal in personhood and value. But Adam was without a doubt the leader in the marriage relationship. God ordained this. This was God's, God's design, His blueprint from the very beginning. But if we go to Genesis chapter 3, the text that we read at the beginning, we see that there are the curse, the curses that come to the distinctions that God created as good. In other words, God said this is good, the devil cursed it, the devil led the, the whole temptation and the fall so that these good things would be cursed. And so again, you see that in Genesis chapter number 3, the interesting thing that I find in verse 6 is, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, you notice that, how many times had she walked past a tree? And she, she didn't even think about the fact that it would be good food. She didn't think that it would be the source of wisdom. She always knew that God was the source of wisdom. She always knew that God was the source of every good thing. But now, suddenly, there was this, this slippery tongue of the wicked one who was saying these words, Did God actually say? There is this questioning of God's word. You see, in the very first sin, there was the questioning of God's word. But there's something else that happened. Not only did the devil question the validity and the authority of God's word, but he also caused her to look at something that was forbidden as something that was good. But then we go to verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, notice this, she took of its fruit and ate. She did not talk to Adam. She did not consult with her husband. She did not 
submit to his leadership. In fact, when she was unwilling to submit to God's word, as a result, she was unwilling to submit to her leader any longer. She ate of the fruit, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, I've struggled with this verse numerous times through the years. Where was Adam? Was he on the south 40 of the garden working when all of this took place? Or was he with her, standing behind her instead of in front of her? Calvin says the fact that Adam was with her when the whole temptation was taking place is simply not believable. So many commentators through history have struggled with the tension here. Where was Adam? Well, here's what we do know. We do know that Adam, whether he was with her, behind her, listening, which Calvin says is not believable, eventually he arrived on the scene. And if you take this latter approach, Adam arrives on the scene and the serpent has now gone and now the wife has eaten the forbidden fruit and instead of rebuke, there is this slippery tongue of the serpent that comes through the lips of his wife and Adam follows the leadership of Eve. Through the temptation of the serpent and falls. What do we have here, you say? The first sin, yes. What do we have here? Questioning of God's word, yes. What do we have here? A refusal to trust in the validity and the authority of God's word, yes. What do we have here? A, a rejection of God's will and God's way, yes. What do we have here? We have here the first role reversal in human history. The first time in all of human history where you see that the man uh, follows the leadership of his wife is right here in the Garden of Eden when the fall took place. The will of God was resisted, the word of God was rejected, and the way of God was redefined. And so Adam and Eve entered into what we now know as degeneration, standing in need of regeneration that would only come by the grace of God. They hid themselves from God. They tried to, in a pitiful way, cover themselves with loincloths. And God would come along and He would call to them. God was the seeker, not them. They were hiding from God. This is sovereign grace. And God would take the skin of animals. In essence, the first sacrifice, pointing to the sufficient sacrifice that would one day happen at Calvary. And he would clothe them, not with loincloths made from a tree, but from animal skin coming from animals. Romans 5.12, the commentary in the New Testament, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Interestingly enough, Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, points the finger back to Adam. And so this curse impacted all of creation. That's why we see that Genesis begins with a burst of life and light, and yet it ends with death. In 
chapter 4 of Genesis, we have polygamy. In chapter 9, we have pornography. In chapter 16, we have adultery. In chapter 19, we have homosexuality. In chapter 34, we have fornication and, and problems with injustice in marriage. In chapter 38, we have incest. In chapter 38, we also have the first prostitute. And all of this we see coming as a result of what we see happening with the first role reversal in the Garden of Eden. So our culture is confused about the roles and responsibilities of men and women. Just earlier this year, in preparation for another sermon that I was preaching at the time, I, I took surveys from high school to see in their career assessment uh, uh, surveys that they were putting before college students who were planning to go off, or uh, high school students who were planning to go off to college, and they were taking this survey to see potential job choices for the future. And so I took some of these assessments, and here is a just a portion of the different choices that would have come to these high school students through these surveys. These surveys were suggesting that if you answered in certain ways, you might want to be a district supervisor, maybe an occupational therapist, maybe an admissions counselor, maybe an air traffic controller, maybe an attorney or a family therapist or a podiatrist or a physical therapist or a professor or a teacher or a public health advisor or a historian or a psychologist or a child welfare worker or a hospital administrator or a real estate appraiser or a religious leader, perhaps. Maybe a librarian or a school superintendent or a social worker or a sociologist or a custom specialist or an air traffic controller or a disc jockey or a nurse. These are all the different choices that I was finding in these surveys, but interestingly enough, I never saw the choice for a stay-at-home mom or a homemaker. It was interesting to me. So our culture today is confused, and it all drives back at this first role reversal. Consider, if you will, a mother of three boys who was casually strolling down the aisle at Target when she was looking at different toys on the aisle, and she saw that there were building sets that caught her eye, and the building sets were for boys. So she snaps a, a picture of it. She tweeted out to Target, and she said, don't do this, Target. Well, it went viral. You might have seen this. And as a result, Target offers an apology. The whole idea is that we should not have distinctions between little boys and little girls. We should let our children choose what they want to do and what they want to be and morph into what they choose to be in life. We have television programs on TLC such as Lost in Transition. It's a new series that follows four couples who are engaged in the process of transgenderism. We have a show on that same network under the name of I Am That Jazz, Jazz Jennings. Just listen to the ad. Meet Jazz Jennings. Although born male, Jazz is a transgender female and has been living as a girl since kindergarten. Parents, Jeanette and Greg, have spent the years finding doctors to treat their daughter. 
while fighting the discrimination and misconceptions associated with what it means to be transgender. But now that Jazz is 14, she is on the brink of the biggest challenge of her life, high school. That's child abuse. Not treating their daughter. They're abusing their daughter. Gloria Steinem, the editor years back of Ms. Magazine, before the year 2000, said these words, By the year 2000, we will, I hope, raise our children to believe in human potential, not God. That was before year 2000. Now we have I Am That Jazz. We have Lost in Transition. We have all sorts of, of confusion that's coming our way at light speed. Years ago, the militant feminists argued that the job of caring for children was some sort of form of oppression and injustice. Uh, some were even suggesting that it's on the level of imprisonment. Some feminists compared the mental state of homemakers to soldiers who were coming home from World War II and had been uh, suffering in POW camps. In the 1960s and 70s, the feminists permeated the language into the minds and hearts of women, saying that you should not put yourself under the leadership of a man. Where does all of this confusion come from? Well, it comes from the first role reversal in Genesis chapter 3. Second of all, we see not only does the devil want to distort God's created order, but he desires to distort God's church order. There is an order, by the way. In Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, listen to these words. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Behave. So that you will know how to behave, how to conduct yourself in terms of the principles and the patterns of life. And so, now we have all sorts of problems in the church. And for many years we've had problems in the church. I think back to my early days at Southern Seminary as a student, walking into a lecture hall, watching a documentary about the, the, the resurgence of Southern Seminary, and seeing the documentary that was on the screen in front of me, and learning about a figure named Molly Marshall, who was the dean of the School of Theology, she was an ordained minister of the gospel. She believed in and taught in the seminary, Southern Seminary, the first of the, of the, the, the higher learning uh, institutions of the Southern Baptist Convention, the foundation, if you will, of the SBC. She was teaching post-mortem salvation opportunities. She was teaching that God could very well be at work in other major world religions. And this is where local churches like this one were sending their preacher boys and their missionaries to train for ministry. And so it was during those dark ages that God would bring 
to leadership there, Al Mohler, and we would see a wonderful change, a wonderful transformation, a wonderful blessing of God that would take place, and Molly Marshall would fade off into the sunset. Al Mohler would hold them accountable for their signature that they would teach in agreement with and not contrary to the abstract of principles, which is the founding document of Southern Seminary, the governing document itself. And so these individuals over time would be replaced and God would raise that institution back up to glory days. What a wonderful thing we have seen. But now that we've seen a shift in social justice, now we're starting to hear questions that are being raised in chapel Q&As in Southern Seminary's chapel asking questions Questions like this, is there a place at the table for women in leadership in the school of theology? Should there be women who are training pastors for preaching and ministry? And so now we're starting to see that there are that there's a new generation, there are new voices, there are a whole crop of new students who are reading social media, rolling through hashtags, looking at Twitter, paying attention to Instagram, going to the conferences, and listening to what's being stated. And here's what's being stated. Russell Moore on Twitter has stated the following. There would be no Southern Baptist Convention without Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong. We desperately need a resurgence of women's voices and women's leadership, and women's empowerment again. It is way past time. I'm not suggesting that there is no place for women in the church. For without women in the church, it wouldn't be the church as God has designed it to be. I'm not suggesting that women have no place at the table for discipleship, for God has written in the word that women are to disciple. We read Titus chapter 2. We see what that looks like, do we not? But then we have J.D. Greer, who is the president of the SBC, who makes a tweet in talk with Beth Moore, talking back and forth on social media, says, thank you, Beth, hoping that we are entering a new era where we in the complementarian world take all the Word of God seriously, not just the parts about distinction and roles, but also the tearing down of all hierarchy. And His gracious distribution of gifts to all His children. Now, I'm not suggesting that J.D. Greer is an evil man. I'm not suggesting that he's not a brother in Christ. I'm simply suggesting that I disagree with what he's stating. I disagree with the whole idea of this deconstruction element that runs right through the social justice movement. Deconstruct the hierarchy. Take away the people who are in the seats of power. Replace them with our people. Accomplish our agenda. But notice... I hope that we are entering a new era when we in the complementarian world take all the Word of God seriously. Jonathan Merritt, the son of James Merritt, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, tweeted during the annual Southern Baptist Convention this past June, 
And he tweeted the following, quote, A woman can be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't see anything in the Bible that prohibits that, end quote, says at Dr. James Merritt. And receives a round of applause. And where was all of this happening? Get this, at a Me Too panel at the SBC 18. The only reason that Beth Moore was not elected as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention this past June was because she did not run for president this past June. This is where we are, not where we are going. This is where we are. So how did we arrive at such confusion in evangelical circles? Well, it happened back in the role reversal In Genesis chapter number 3, you see, God has a plan for the home. God has a plan for for men to lead their wives and to graciously lead and to sacrificially love. And he has given this responsibility of leadership to the husband in the home. We see this with Adam and Eve in the garden, and yet that first role reversal corrupted it all. And coming through the home is this idea of leadership in the church. The word elder in reference to the office of pastor, is the act of watching over, the act of oversight, the act of leading, the act of shepherding. And there are different terms that are used in the New Testament for the office of elder, for the office of pastor. And yet we see that all of those different terms point to leadership in some capacity. And yet we find that God has a plan, this plan that was rooted in creation for men to be leaders, finds its way into the church because God not only ordained it for the garden, but He also ordained it for His church. In 1 Timothy 2.12, we find these words, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, what we must understand is that, yes, that's in the context of the local church. That's in the context of the offices of elder. The office of elder is for those men who are called, not all men, but the men who are called and equipped by God for this particular office. But I would also argue that it is absolutely impossible to preach the Word of God without authority. You can't say, thus says the Lord God, in a passive way. You can't say that and somehow uh, not be preaching the Word of God with authority. When you preach the Word of God, when you point to the Scriptures, you are doing so with a measure of authority because the herald is simply sent out to deliver the message of the king, not his own message, the message of the king, and the herald is always to come with the authority of the king so long as he quotes the king and delivers the message of the king with the intent of the king. And so we can't suggest that, well, this is just talking about in the local church. So now at conferences like the Founder Southeast or at G3 or at whatever other conference might come along, that we should have women preaching the word there. You can't preach the Bible without authority. So we must guard the line. We must stand firm on the Scripture. The word teach, didasco, according to Tom Schreiner, has in mind the public teaching and involves authoritative transmission of tradition about Christ and the Scriptures. So 
just the very word itself, didasco, implies this idea of teaching the word of God, of, of providing the word of God, and it's to be done with authority. William Varner, in his excellent book, To Preach or Not to Preach, writes the following. The issue involved in 1 Timothy 2 is not an inherent inferiority of women's intellectual and spiritual capabilities, but her function in ministry. She is not subordinate in her capacity, but she is to be subordinate in her role. Let it also be noted clearly that Paul does not ground his reasoning in the male-dominated culture of his day. He does not write, quote, Women should not teach because men will not accept them as teachers, end quote. He grounds his teaching in the order of creation and fall. And so it is that we see that it's not that women aren't capable. It's not that women aren't able. It's not that women aren't intellectual. It's not that women aren't smart. It's not any of that. It's simply the God-ordained role and responsibility that is rooted in creation. So to capitulate on any area of headship in the family or leadership in the church is a grave mistake. And beware of those voices that are consistently looking for ways to push the boundaries to expand the boundaries. I remember years ago, since we were talking about Southern Seminary, I remember years ago in the conservative resurgence days. Do you remember the conservative resurgence days and what that was about? Do you remember the, the whole terminology? Remember words matter, ideas matter, theology matters. The issue was inerrancy. Is the Bible inerrant? Is the Bible the inerrant word of God, or is it not? And so then you would have conversations over coffee. And you would have individuals who would be there discussing these matters, and you would have a liberal, and you would have a conservative. Some would say a liberal and a moderate. Let's just be honest. A liberal and a conservative. And you have these individuals discussing the matters, and you have all of these conversations that were coming to the surface, but here's what you would have. It would go something like this. The liberal would say, I believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. The conservative would take a sip of coffee and say, that's wonderful. I believe in the inerrancy of the Bible too. He would take a sip of coffee and he would say, what exactly do you mean by inerrancy? And the liberal would say, well, I believe that the Bible contains the Word of God. And the conservative would take a sip of coffee, try not to spew it everywhere in the process, and would say, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. See, there's a world of difference between contains and is. Words matter. Now, in the complementarian world today, we have people saying, I believe in complementarianism. I'm complementarian. I believe in complementarianism. They sit on panels and say it. They preach in conferences and say it. They write articles and say it. And they're defending their position. Because meanwhile, they're pressing the boundaries. Tear down hierarchy. Press the boundary. 
And so the question becomes this. What do you mean by complementarianism? What do you mean? So how do we arrive at all of this confusion surrounding boundaries and roles and responsibilities both in culture and the church? Well, it all goes back to the first role reversal. You get the order right and suddenly there is harmony in the culture. Suddenly there is harmony and unity in the church. So we must not forget that we have an infallible word, an inerrant word, a sufficient word, and so we should stand on it. Should we blush about what the Word of God says today? Should we back up? Should we sit down? Should we not speak up? You see, we need men to once again be men, courageous men. Men who know what it means to love their wives as Christ loved the church, not in a militant way, not in some sort of dictatorship way, but in a sacrificial way. You want women to flourish? You don't have to press the boundaries of complementarianism. You simply have to live within the roles and responsibilities that God has placed before us in His sufficient Word, and both men and women will flourish. You don't have to press boundaries. We need men who are not seeking to get in touch with their feminine side. There is no such thing as your feminine side. So I want to encourage you men who are pastors that this is not the hour for sleeping and snoring. I'm not talking about this hour. This might be the hour for it. It's early in the morning. I'm talking about this hour of culture. It's not the time for sleeping and snoring. It's time to wake up. It's time to stand up. It's time to step up. And it's time to speak up. The proponents of social justice are playing the cards of ethnic pragmatism, gender pragmatism, class pragmatism, sexual pragmatism. But just give me the word. Give me the book. The scriptures contain 1,189 chapters, 31,000 promises, 700,000 words, 3.5 million letters, 33,000 promises, 6,468 commands. I'll take God's word. The proponents of social justice are playing the cards of intersectionality, critical race theory, systemic racism, white privilege. Give me the book. Isaiah 40 and verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Psalm 119, 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed. Psalm 119, 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We don't need intersectionality. We don't need the confusion of social justice. We need the Word of God. Walt Kaiser is exactly right when he says that the church and the Scripture stand or fall together. And so if we're going to stand up and step up and speak up, we need to make sure that we have something to say. And when we do speak up, it should be 
Thus says the Lord God. The first Adam damned us. The last Adam saved us. The first Adam led us away from God. The last Adam brought us near to God. The first Adam imputed to our account the guilt of sin. The last Adam imputed to our account the righteousness of God. The first Adam cursed us through his role reversal. The last Adam saved us by his blood. So our hope is not in social justice. Our hope is in the covenant-keeping, sin-defeating, devil-destroying, salvation-providing, sovereign God of all creation. Remember, one day egalitarianism, like all other false isms, will die a hard death. One day, Christ will return, and all of these isms, including egalitarianism, will all be put to rest once and for all. On that day, there will be no question about whose authority should be followed. When Christ returns, on that day, the homosexual agenda will come to a crushing end. On that day, there will be no questioning God's design for humanity. On that day, there will be no more battle for the dictionary. On that day, the egalitarian approach to life will suddenly be defeated. And on that day, the tongue of the slippery devil who embodied a serpent in the Garden of Eden will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And his knee will bow before his throne. And Christ will be exalted. Don't back up. Don't give up. Don't throw in the white towel. This is not the time for sleeping and snoring. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the privilege to open your word and to examine the horrific attempt of the devil to distort the created order and the church order. So now there are all of these questions. Should we allow our children to choose their gender? Should we allow women to preach in our pulpits and in our conferences and teach in the school of theology at the local seminary? All of these questions have massive impact upon culture, upon the home, and upon the church. So, Father, we ask for wisdom to navigate all of these issues, to consider all of these definitions, to consider all of these ideas as we examine them through the lens of the sufficient and the authoritative word of the living God. When we go back and see it so clearly played, this ancient playbook of the devil the simple role reversal. And he continues to play the same play even today. Oh God, we're pleading that you would raise up even from this very room faithful men, women, boys, and girls 
who would take your word seriously and flourish for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.